I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. From day one, I always thought that I would be successful if people would sit around the dinner table and say something like, guess what I heard on the radio today about, you know, squid or octopus or, or about the universe or whatever, and that people would sit around the dinner table and talk about something they heard as much as they would talk about the latest sports scores. That's Ira Flato. As you probably know, Ira hosts the popular public radio show Science Friday. He's one of the top science communicators in the United States, and his reach goes around the world. Ira and I share a love of science, and I think we're both passionate about infecting others with that love. That would be an infection to fight all other infections. And we both have a special fondness for asking naive, innocent, even dumb questions. They come easily to me, but I think Ira has to work at it. Ira, I'm so glad to be talking to you today. You're you're the man. You're really it. I, I, talking about communicating, especially communicating science. How how long have you been doing Science Friday? Uh, science Friday, we will be starting our 30th year next wow. year. But I have been doing science since the first Earth Day. In 1970, April 22nd, 1970, I was still in college, and I was covering anti-war riots. And I I wanted, I was studying engineering, and I said I wanted to find something different than, you know, being chased, uh, being tear gassed and chased by a cop with a club. (laughs) (laughs) That was was part of, you didn't have a big sign on your hat that said press? Uh, No, I didn't, but I had a big Sony tape recorder on my head. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking that would deflect the blow. I I thought it would, but my, uh, my boss said, you know, I'm giving you this tape recorder and we're a small public radio station. And so if the choice comes down... Down to your head or the tape recorder. <laughs> you know what choice to make. So. <laughs> what? What? You were studying engineering. Yes. And look how your life has devolved devolved into talking about it. Why didn't you do it? I because I wasn't good at it. When I was a kid, I was one of these kids in the basement who, that would uh, take apart TV sets, repair stuff, electronics, gadgets. Here in New York, before the World Trade Center was here, there was something called Radio Row, where you had uh, all the surplus World War II electronics stuff lined up in boxes on Vesey Street, Canal Street, all these streets, and they were basically selling electronic parts by the pound. Huh. And I, I was one of these kid experimenters, and I would go down there, and I would just go and pick out parts I wanted to make projects. When I was in seventh grade, I made, uh, I made a, a punch card reader. Now, some of your listeners may never have heard of that, but I made that a machine. The early re- IBM computers yeah. used punch cards, yeah. but what didn't they have a reader? Well, I made it for a high school project for the science fair. Oh, I see. And so I want I needed parts, and I, I went down there, and I got 100 diodes. Even IBM sent me, knowing I was a student, 100 diodes for free, and then I got the rest of the parts down in town. See, here. here's the difference between us. You were a kid, and you were making things with diodes. I made a malted milk machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there's something that's old world about that. I think, yeah. I Well, they're the same generation because um, I, I had to use a malted milk machine to keep me going. So I could. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so then I, you know, I thought that's what engineering was about until I got into college. And I discovered that it was not about that. And I was never going to make a punch card machine. Um, and so you were, in, were you inventive too? Did, were you inventing things? I was building Heathkit radio receivers, shortwave radios, oscilloscopes, things like that. I, the, the punch card reader was about as inventive as I got. But when I was in high school, um, I was one of these nerdy kids with the pocket protector and the white socks and all that stuff. And we were, I was in 11th grade and we were reading Death of a Salesman. And I was reading Willie Loman. And I was a nerdy kid in the back of the room, and Mrs. Kestenbaum, at the end of English class, points at me, and she says, I want to see you at the end of class. I said, my goodness, Mrs. Kestenbaum, what did I do? She said, nothing. She said, I, I really like the way you read Willie Loman, and there is the senior class play is happening next, next semester. I want you to try out for it. I said, oh, really? Yeah, that'd be, I'd like that, yeah. So I tried out for the senior class play, and um, I got, we did uh, Rally Around the Flag Boys, and I, I got Paul Newman's part. And from this nerdy kid who went, never had a date in high school, all the girls, you know, wanted <laughs> suddenly to go out with me. And then I, I did about six more plays in high school, and I found out I could come out of my little shell, and I wasn't afraid to talk. And so when I went to college, they didn't have a theater department, but they had a radio station. And I joined the radio station, WBFO, there, and it turned out I was in the right place at the right time. Because the head of the radio station, Bill Seemering, would soon leave and go to Washington to start NPR. He wrote the mission statement. He invented all things considered. He was like the, the guru of public radio. And I said, get me out of here. It's cold, you know, after a while. And he, he agreed and hired me to come to Washington as a, uh, an underling. And um, he said, I had to talk him into it because he said, you know, I need somebody who will stay as a peon, who will edit tape, do the <laughs> That's the a great job word. to apply for. Yeah. He said, I just hired this woman named Wertheimer and somebody named Stamberg, and they come in as, you know, as low-level producers, and then they're on the radio. I don't want you to ever be on the radio. And I said, okay, that's the, fr that's the, that's the bargain, the Faustian bargain I'll make with you. And so I came down there. But you did want to be on the radio. I right? did. I did. I did. did, did let, let me, let me, let, when did you start to be on the radio on NPR? In 1972. It wasn't <laughs> actually, long after. Actually, it was three days after I got hired in 71. Uh, NPR only had 35 employees and has now 835 employees. And so they didn't have many reporters. And they knew I had reporting experience. I had left BFO with, uh, I was the news director. And so uh, they had a couple of commercial radio uh, uh, reporters who knew how good I could be. And the Washington senators were just leaving, going to Texas from Washington, and they'd become the, the Texas baseball team. And they said, you know, we want you to cover that story. Go down to the airport where somebody is trying to keep them here. And I went down there, and I, I did the story about Washington trying to bring back the senators and eventually failing. And I was on the radio three days later. But I was not. It was just a one. It was a, a one-off because then I started as doing science producing. You know the scene in broadcast news where, 
you know, he yells into the ear of the guy and he ans- he asks the question of the of Yeah, the, yeah. Inter- you were the, I, you were the I guy. Was, I was the guy. The guy yelling. Yes, I was the guy cuz they wouldn't allow me on the radio, but I could I could I knew the questions to ask. So the, eventually they said this is kind of stupid. Why don't you just go ask the questions yourself? <laughs> But here's what is playing around in my mind. You discovered almost by accident that you were good on the stage, at least in that setting, in that early setting. Do you still use a performer's technique, a performer's mindset when you work on the radio, when you interview people, when you talk to the audience? When you talk to the audience, you often sound like you're just talking to me. I sound like you a lot. That's what think. people say. I, don't, I find that hard to believe. Okay. People, uh, <clears throat> now wait, let's test this out. Hey, we're going to have a little test. Say, uh, welcome to Clear and Vivid. Welcome to Clear and Vivid. Which one of us said that? I can't. <laughs> well, uh, the fact that we're in the same room together must mean something, that we're not the same person. But to answer your question, we, yeah, yeah I, I do I do try to use, uh, to to loosen up some of my, um, the interviews I'm, I'm doing. Uh, I do try to, to act like we're on stage a little bit, mm-hmm. and we're trying to communicate as as people inside of a play or people who are trying to create to convey a message that we have. And and uh, yeah, I, I I do channel a lot of people. You know what what I make use of as an actor when I'm doing an interview, I, and I don't do standard interviews; they're conversations mm-hmm. where something comes back at me and I react to it. Sometimes I bring up some personal experience which invites the other person to respond to. And what this is for me is a version of what I do on the stage when I'm relating to another actor where Mm. I expect the other actor to respond in a fresh way if something happens to me fresh and then I can respond in a fresh way to what they've just done. Did you get a sense of that enough as a young actor to be using that aspect of acting? Yes. And in the sense that um, even though I have a list of questions down there, um, I will veer off from the questions because I don't want to be asking a list of questions. I want to be having a conversation. And if uh, the conversation I start goes away, I will go with that. I will make use of them telling me personal things about themselves, which I really want to hear because people don't think that scientists are people. I know, and I I heard you once say you asked the scientist, how did you feel when you discovered that? And then all of a sudden, this emotion comes out of them. Isn't that great? And and yes, and then we go with that emotion, and we take it, and we react to it, and I will purposely react to that. In not just uh, uh, auditory f- f- speaking, but I will look at them yeah. and use facial expressions to, you know, egg them on, to react, to, to yeah. shake my head, do things like that that shows the, that validates what they're saying and tries to draw out more from them. That's what made, I, I realized later, that's what made the work we did on Scientific American Frontiers work as well as it did. Because I wasn't coming in with a list of questions. I was coming in with curiosity. And if I didn't understand it, and I was in a much better position not to understand it than you are, and if I didn't understand it, I used my natural ignorance 
and just said, fill up this ignorance. Tell me something that I don't understand and make me understand it. But, you, but that was the exact right thing to do because you were putting yourself in the, in the seat of the audience yeah. who doesn't understand that to begin with. Right. And so you had an advantage. You had an advantage in that you were not afraid to ask dumb questions. In the beginning, I was not aware that it was a good thing to ask dumb questions, and I tried to look smarter than I was. And then I realized they had a natural store of ignorance that would really be useful. But... It, it it that really reminds me of something I heard you say once, that you feel. Tell me if I have this right. That mm-hmm. science is learned by people more informally than formally. Yeah, there's a, there's a study that shows that um, only five percent of your of your science is learned formally in school. This this can't be true of scientists, of professional well, scientists. Well, no, they take a different course, but um, they're, they're, they go on to study intensely. They, but uh-huh. the general public— The general public only knows they 5% learn, from school. They learn it from you when you did Scientific American, when you do these. They learn it informally. They learn it from Science Friday. They learn it from going to the museums. They learn it from where they bump into it in life. Uh, on on a field trip or or wherever they go, that's where they learn their science informally, and there's a lot of science they can learn informally. And you know what's interesting is that the greatest myth about learning science, people love science. People love to learn about science. So how does that square with the receding funding of science by the government? Oh, that's politics. So. Isn't isn't politics supposed to be a reflection of the sentiment of the people? But there is politics that gets in the way of it. For example, if climate change and climate crisis is so accepted, why do we have our leaders in Washington saying it's the greatest hoax ever perpetuated? Yeah, why do we? What's your take on that? I, my own personal belief and yeah. this I have nothing, is, is because it was Al Gore who mentioned it first. Liberal Democrat Al Gore, who started us talking about it, and now no conservative Republican is ever going to agree with that. I see. Whether the science, you know, how many scientific studies you can do, um, it, 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 people, there, and there are political stuff, also other political things. For example, we have done shows on, uh, is there a connection between autism and vaccination? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's so much data that shows there is no connection. And I had a woman who called in, and she went on a 10-minute monologue about why she won't get her kids vaccinated. On and on, and my directors are saying, cut her off. I said, no, we have to listen to this. And when she was done, I I said to her, can you sum up your reason about why you do not want to get your kids vaccinated, given that there are all these studies? And she said, I just don't believe anything my government tells me. And it could be the science because the government does so much of the science behind all the medicine we use. She just doesn't want to go because her politics says that the government's just going to lie to her all the time. So what you have now, with especially with climate change, you have what I call a left-brain, right-brain collision. Um, you have... You have the left brain that is the side, I know it's oversimplification, the left side that, that, that is the side that thinks about science, that thinks about how to think correctly, and you have the right emotional side. And so when they see things, when they see there's no, there's no uh, ice in the North Pole anymore, and that science shows you that, and then they think of their political side, they don't know what to do. 
Um, I I could tell you a long story about this, but I won't use up your time. But but this is what's going on, and I think with climate change, the, there's no kid growing up today who's not going to believe. Or that's why kids are so involved now. Yeah, that's why Greta Greta Thunberg is right. so involved now. It's because they see that it's their planet that we're leaving them. Yeah. We're leaving them nothing. Let me go back a step. Um, and so I want to know what your reaction to this notion is. It seems to me that as I try to do what little I can to help scientists explain their work to the public, it seems important to me not to politicize that. But if the government is denying the data that scientists are coming up with and denying them funding— denying them even access to their own data sometimes. Mm-hmm. How can you resist that without becoming political? And should science become more political? Uh, it's a very good question. It's something that I I fight with myself all the time. Um, my answer is I, I don't see in this climate, political climate that we have, this divisive, polarized, tribalistic climate that we have, how you can avoid talking about the politics and talking about uh, where you stand on some of the issues. As long as you can talk about the data, then you have science on your side. Mm. So as long as we talk about the data and it can back up what we say by the data, then we're safe to talk about uh, climate change, evolution, whatever, uh, as long as we can bring that to the to the discussion. We have to be, be able to bring the data. If we could... If we could just debate the, the, the data, that would be great. But we don't do that. You know, the people uh, are too emotional about this. So that's how I deal with it. And um, So you, you don't, you would, you would try to resist politicizing it? Yes. I would, if it, it will get political because my conclusions... Are using not accepted the, by yes, certain people. Yeah, conclusions using the data as, as my... Uh, background will not be accepted. They they don't want the conclusions of it. You know, they've come to a conclusion and then they'll say, well, I don't believe your facts. We have our own set of facts. Is it still true, do you know, that in Florida you can't use the term global warming or climate <laughs> change? Uh, you have to call I, it inconvenient flooding. I, there, are, there are places in the South, you're, you're right, and we've had we've had scientists from down there on the show, and I've brought that up. And they laugh a little bit, and they said they would say we get around that somehow. But you're right. It, yeah, I, I think it was if you were a real estate agent, and my wife is a real estate agent, so we talk about this. You couldn't point to a map and say, you know, 50 years from now, the water is going to be up here. You couldn't do that because that would no, be you, well. You certainly don't want to do it if you're trying to sell them the <laughs> land. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you're right. So I, I think that in certain places, that is still. That is still a rule, but it's not going to be for much longer, I don't think. We are at the point now where we have reached a certain tipping point where we're not going to be able to stop, even if we stopped everything today. Yeah. We're, in, we're not going to be able to keep the oceans from rising. They've already been, they're already filling up with, with enough Greenland and Antarctic water. And no matter what you think, the oceans don't care. It's partly a, a huge communication problem, it sounds to me. It is. It is a huge communication problem, but... Um, I have learned that you have to be very patient with this stuff because 
Um, if you don't want to believe something, I can't change your mind. If you don't want to believe it, you there has to be a, some sort of paradigm shift. Yeah. Where what we're seeing now a bit, where your eyes, you can't deny what your eyes are seeing. After a certain amount of time, you just can't deny it. It seems to me there are so many people who don't want to talk about climate change, but they do want to talk about the ability to get next year's crops in or yes, or not have their yes. property flooded. I agree with you. And we, we on Science Friday have talked about how do we reach people living in the middle of the flyover country? Mm. What is the commonality we can find with people who are talking climate change or not talking climate change? And uh, I took a trip to Georgia a couple of years ago and talked to some farmers there. And it struck me that farming and food is the commonality that everybody has to have, right? Mm. The farmers, the people who are involved in these, in these central areas, they will all agree that these are real problems and they're not made of problems and they're not liberal, you know, democratic problems. These are all problems we as farmers also think about. And, uh, and there is a commonality there that, I, that we try to use as a jump-off point um, so that we can speak to everybody without creating any sort of political dialogue. That's hopeful. Very hopeful. Ira and I would both like to see science trusted and relied on more by our society. But for that to happen, there are probably some basic things the rest of us need to understand a little better. These things don't naturally leap to mind, like how failure in science is a good thing. More on that after the break. On December 14, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Science Friday's Ira Flato. What we don't tell the public enough, and what they don't seem to understand in everyday life, is that failure is a good thing yeah. in science, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, science is built upon the shoulders of failed people, failed experiments. That's why I wish more failed experiments got published. They don't publish them. You know, but we we bring on scientists who've written books about failure, entitled Failure, and talking about how failure is is necessary for you to move forward. I describe it as as sculpture. You chip away at all the things that don't belong there, mm. and suddenly a bust head pops out. 
You know, once you're done, you finally have uh, success. Isn't that what Michelangelo said? He said, all I do is chip away everything that's not a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was doing science at that (laughs) point. (laughs) But there is this, this, um, it's easy for some people to say, oh, the scientists don't know what they're talking about. One of the most important things I think you and I can, can communicate to other people who don't spend as much time as we do admiring science is that there's a process that involves trial and error, as you just said, that involves collecting data, having a theory, and sometimes, most of the time, finding your theory mm-hmm. doesn't work. Isn't a real description of the process? Well, there is, there is that process, um, but what is not understood is that in that process, there's a lot of failure. In other words, I remember, I remember, and when that, when that failure becomes known and not understood, it becomes politicized mm. by people who don't like science. They'll look at the failure, and especially if it's the federal government spending lots of money on yeah. stuff we shouldn't do, you know, they will look at that failure, politicize it, and say we shouldn't be doing it, we shouldn't be spending that. Or, or the other side of it, why are we doing, why are we putting shrimp on a treadmill, you know, right. and, and well, why, why are we it? studying fruit flies? Who, exactly. Who cares about having healthy fruit flies? Right. And and the some great breakthroughs have come about because we've been able to study other animals. Yes, and and you, if you really want to understand how science works, you will listen to that and try to understand it. If you don't want to fund science and think science is a bad thing because it may conflict with your point of view, whether it has to do with autism, it has to do with evolution, it has to do with your religion, you will find a reason to take that and use it against science. So what is all this you were telling me before about how popular science is? <laughs> what, what's science, going on here? Well, I think those people are in the minority, but they have a very loud voice and a lot of them are in politics. You know, mm. um, we, I, 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 you can look at all the statistics about where science is used in the public, whether it's on television or in the film or, uh, or our website. We have, you know, two million listeners and we have— This is amazing, all the work you're doing. What, you've got two million listeners on the radio and two, you've got people on the website. We have people on the website. We make videos. We have hundreds of videos that most people don't know about, but we're slowly getting out there. Uh, we have educational, a whole educational division where we will take what we do and make teaching materials out of it to the point we'll make Facebook Live events where teachers can come on and watch us do an experiment that they'll use in their classroom and we'll teach them how to do that. Uh, we go out to tonight. I'm going to be going out in New York here to caveat and we're going to be do a live discussion, a, a trivia contest. We go around the country and this is, this is how I know. We go to, uh, we take Science Friday on the road and we'll go to a theater, a, a big theater. We were in San Francisco. We, were, we go to big towns and we'll get 2,000 people to come and talk and listen to about uh, t- topics about science. And not only do we get 2,000 people who are eager to talk about it, we'll get very young people in the audience. And I will tell the, uh, uh, in my talk up to our discussion, I'll tell people in the audience, we have a couple of microphones here. But if you want to get your question in, you'd better get to the mic early because a nine-year-old is going to muscle you out. <laughs> And sure enough, the line of 
teenagers, younger kids up there who are asking questions of scientists that they never get to talk to. And that's why we like a live show like Science Friday. You get to talk to a real scientist. What's like, an example of a question that a kid I'll, asks? I'll give you one that sticks, sticks out in my mind. Um, we had about three field scientists on stage. And a little kid came up. I'm telling you, you have to lower the when mic. When you say field scientists. Well, they go out in the field and collect data. Oh, I see. You know, they go out okay. and do research in the field. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a kid comes down, and he's, he's small enough. We have to lower the microphone. And he says, I have a question. Um, how do you make sure that the samples you bring back don't contaminate one another? And it's Scientists are looking at each other, nodding their heads, saying, what a great question that is. <laughs> and, and the scientist says, you know, that is our biggest concern when we go out in the field is how to make sure that our samples are pristine when we bring them back and they haven't touched one another. Wow. They'll say, how do you bring them along to the next field yeah, trip, you yeah. know? And so we get really basic questions that adults are afraid to ask because they'll sound dumb. Or, or just not thinking like a scientist yet the way that kid was. Yeah. And, and so it, it, is, it makes me really feel good because I really believe the future of us is in our teenagers or our youngsters. And if we just give them a generation, the whole, the whole, all this all will turn around scientifically, uh, the science and, and the media. What do you think your mission is? Um. Good question. I, from day one, um, I always thought that I would be successful if people would sit around the dinner table and say something like, guess what I heard on the radio today mm. about, you know, squid or octopus or, or about the universe or whatever, and that people would sit around the dinner table and talk about something they heard as much as they would talk about the latest sports scores. You know, well, or, you've or succeeded business. in my family because my <laughs> wife and I sit around the dinner table and say that uh, a after every show we've heard of yours. Thank you, Alan. Your whole life as a science communicator pretty much has been in radio, in, this, in mm -hmm. the sound of the voice. And at a time when video, uh, streaming video is getting more and more um, the way to deliver our entertainment, for instance— you're still so effective with sound, and sound is growing. There are 600,000 podcasts. That what, many? What wow. is there? This is one in 600,000. <laughs> well, yours makes two in 600,000. <laughs> <laughs> what is there about well, the sound of science that's so seductive? Um, I think that people, I think people still like to communicate verbally, and mm -hmm. I think that um, when we do a podcast or we do a live Science Friday, I think people understand it deep inside of them that when they're listening to it, there are millions of other people sitting around that campfire mm. at the same time listening to those other million people. And there is a sense that of community and a sense that of a shared experience. I'm a great believer in having a shared experience for everybody. Um, and they, there is a certain dynamic that goes on there. And I can tell from when our listeners call in or the, or the number of podcasts that we get that the, the spoken word, the, the sense of uh, we're all listening together to the same thing is very powerful. You Still can hear very, the engagement. 
Yeah. When they, I know when I'm on your show and somebody calls in, I hear that the conversation has affected them in some way. Yeah, it has. And, and, and in fact, we know from our statistics that 80 per, over 80% of people who listen to the show are motivated to do something else next about what they heard. Wow. That's a huge number. What percentage? 80, over 80%. 83%, I think. Well, what should everybody do now after listening to you and me? Maybe we can get it up to 80, 80%. They should go find two. another one of your podcasts to listen to. Oh, oh what a nice thing to say. Because you, Alan, I, uh, I know you're giving me all this credit, but uh, you deserve a tremendous amount of credit for popularization of science. Thank you your, so Your much. career, your, your last 20 years of what you've been doing, I've watched it, and it's just been terrific for, for science, whether it's Scientific American or what you're doing now. Um, your your voice is a huge megaphone, and we as listeners and as people who appreciate science are much better for it that you're involved. Thank you so much. And you'll notice I didn't interrupt you for a second. <laughs> Shows you how good you are at what you do. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go, we always ask uh, seven quick questions, and they can be seven quick answers. You ready for this? Shoot. What do you wish you really understood? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I I wish I really understood, I think with a lot of other people, is that every time I look up in the sky, I wish I understood what the universe was made out of. Hmm. I mean, we don't know what 96% of the universe yeah, is made right, of. Yeah, right, right. I wish I knew. So if we look up and we say, where's the rest of that stuff? Yeah, we, all the bright stuff we can see, it's 4%. Yeah, right. yeah that is, that's an extraordinary, that's something for the next 20,000 years of humanity to figure out. You know, I once did I once did a show on that very s s topic, and then the next piece I did live was with a biologist. We were talking about DNA, and he said, you know, we only know what 4% of the DNA is. The really? Rest. It's almost the same percentage. I said that. He, I said, so you, like, have dark DNA. He said, can I steal that phrase? <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. I never heard that. That's really good. I got to learn more about that. Okay, number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Very carefully. But <laughs> um, you do. Well, I, you or know, do you? I, 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 I try to tell them this is what I think the data shows. Mm -hmm. I'm, I know, as I mentioned before, I'm never going to convince somebody who, whose mind is made up that they should change their mind. They won't do that, but I'll try to find some commonality, and I'll give them something to think about, some piece of data to think about. You know, if, if climate change is not real, why is there no ice in the North Pole anymore? Okay, number three. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <sighs> the strangest question. That is, um, how did I, uh, <laughs> uh, I once went into the closet with Susan Stamberg at the end, back in the 70s. At the Wait end. a minute. This is, sounds like... <laughs> Too personal a story. <laughs> oh, no, I, I got I got a note. I got a note from a listener who said my kids are going into the closet to chew wintergreen lifesavers because they spark in the dark. Oh right. Would you investigate that? So you said to Susan, let's That's right. I said we're gonna end all things considered closet. sparking in the closet and, and and we did. So that was like one of the strangest things. And and that was the most popular piece for the next ten years. And did you have sparks coming out of your mouth? I, we had uh, we had them in the lifesavers. And I, I, you know, and it was real. And I asked, when, I asked the Lifesaver people at that time, and they denied 
that it ever happened. Really? But we, but we created so much buzz about it that five years later, I'm watching television and Lifesaver commercial is on. And what do you think it's about? Sparking. In the sure, car. you could sell more Lifesavers that way. So, okay, here's a, an interesting one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, I interrupt them. Just I, like that. Well, I, another story. Um, I once got a, uh, a phone call from a woman who was uh, teaching uh, English as a second language. And she said, can I use Science Friday tapes to teach English as a second language? And I said, that's great. You want to use science to teach English? She said, long pause, not really. She said, we just like the way you interrupt people. <laughs> so I must be doing something right, you know, interrupting I, I, what, people. How is interrupting people connected with the English language? I, I, I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade. Don't they interrupt people in Polish? <laughs> okay, next question. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone next to you at a dinner party who you don't know? I'll bring up um, a really interesting fact about science, something, you know, about the microbiome or something that will make them think outside of their box hmm. and outside of their comfort zone. And I'm willing to be called a nerd or whatever you'd like to call me. You know, I'm very happy, happily wear that if you think that's what I am when I bring that up. Well, you have a, a storehouse of interesting <sighs> facts, so I can imagine you get good conversations. Next one, what gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? Um, youngsters, young teenagers now, watching how they are connected to science gives me confidence in our future. Because you can get very depressed now uh, in, in the political climate that we are and, a, and the way it affects science. But I watch the youngsters coming to talk with us and, our, and, and when we're on the road and I see them uh, defending science now and that gives me confidence. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, I have an answer for that. I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, when, the whole thing goes down the drain. <laughs> uh, when I was a teenager, and, and I was one of these geeky teenagers, I read George Gamow's book called Mr. Tompkins. Mr. Tompkins in Relativity Land. He had created a whole series for what it was a New Yorker or the Saturday, Saturday Evening Post when Einstein was, was active in the 30s and he was talking about relativity. He was writing these things in, in magazines. And he wrote a series of magazine articles about what would it be like to live in a world where relativity, the speed of light is only like 100 miles an hour. And you lived and you drove your car and you walked and you shrunk up in size and whatever. And I, as if you were traveling at the speed of light. And he wrote a whole series of these articles, and they put it together in a book, which I still have, a little weathered book called Mr. Tompkins. And that really changed my life. I, I started thinking about the universe. I kept the book. I started re reading all I could about Einstein, uh, reading all I could about physics, still trying to understand, you know, quantum mechanics, which I never will. Um, and that changed my life, that book. I got I to gotta read that book. I haven't read it. Oh, that sounds great. Great book, great book. Ira, this has been so great. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Alan. It's been my pleasure. I love talking with you. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode, 
All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Ira Flato is the award-winning science correspondent and TV journalist who also hosts one of my favorite radio and podcast series, Science Friday. Sci-Fry, as it's affectionately known, can be heard on public radio stations across the country and is distributed by WNYC Studios. You can listen online at sciencefriday.com. Ira is also a well-known writer, and you can find his science-friendly articles all over the place, anywhere from ESPN to Women's Day magazine. The best way to keep in touch with Ira is to follow him on Twitter at at IraFlato. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next time on Clear and Vivid, I talk with Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Mel and Carl, you you guys are great. They told us it was there and clivid. Now, what are you saying? No, clear and vivid. Carl, you're looking so studious. Carl looks good, doesn't he? He looks great. Well, if you get to be 90, how old? You're going to be 98 in March. 98 in March. Yes. But the good thing about that is you forget how old you are. (laughs) (laughs) Next time on Clear and Vivid. On Clear and Vivid. It was a pleasure.